Hope you like that little Spanish flavor in there, man. That's pretty cool, that's pretty good. For you came and you died and you rose again to save a soul like me. And I know, yes, you will. And our King will forever be. So we come today um, as believers to invite, to remember, and to, and to praise, and to invite non-Christians to join us in serving a wonderful, awesome God who died to have restore fellowship with us. We just love Jesus. Um, we are in the midst of uh, a series on 1 Samuel, um, and uh, I am Lloyd Biddle. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. If, you've, if you're this is one of your early times, I'm one of the pastors on staff. And for the last four weeks, we've been preaching on the book of, of 1 Samuel. This covers the period of when how God led people from a group of leaders called Judges, the transition to God leading people through a king. So we're studying the, the last phases of the judgeship. Um, the first uh, sermon that I preached, um, I said a godly life is comprised of joy in the midst of trials, and we focused on one character, Hannah, who desired to have a child and to dedicate this child to God. So the anguish of uh, being barren, the joy of having a child, the anguish of having to come year after year and make a robe for the child but not to bring him home. That, 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 that the Christian life is comprised of joy in the midst of trials designed to build our faith. That was week one. Week two, we had um, Pastor Vince come and tell us about the conflict between God and his people. He was talking about Eli and his two sons who were uh, wicked and who should have been restrained but, but weren't. And the question that, that Vince posed to us, he says, in a conflict between me and someone else, that it's the doing that makes a difference. It's the choosing God over all else that makes a difference, the actual doing that makes a difference. Then last week um, with Samuel, um, as a young uh, emerging priest who had never heard from God, uh, God speaks to him three times. And the message we wanted you to understand is that God wants you to know that he knows your name, that you're just not one of seven billion to God, but that he knows you intimately and that, and that um, his, his word is for you, his fellowship is for you. And when you pray to him, he hears you. He knows your name. One of my favorite songs is, he knows your name. If I was Deborah, I'd sing some of that, but I'm not, so I'm moving on. <laughs> so that was, that was then. And, and uh, this week we were talking about who can stand before the Lord. This word stand is a metaphor. It's used in 1 Samuel 6 and 20. The Israelites talk about God and his holiness, and they ask themselves, who's able to have fellowship with God? It's a metaphor for that. And early um, in Genesis, there's a character, a positive example of this. His name is Enoch. I like Enoch because of this one particular verse. In, in Genesis 5.24, it says, 
Enoch, who was the son of uh, Adam, son Seth in that line, Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because the Lord took him away. That is, he brought him into heaven. And the idea is that who can, who can be in fellowship rightly with God? So when we talk about standing, we're saying, who does he embrace into his family? That's what we're gonna cover. And in this sermon, I want you to think of this as a play with five scenes. In four scenes, we're gonna see negative examples of, uh, of Israelites who are trying to stand in three cases, but, but, but don't. And then one case of the Philistines and their God that try to stand against God, and that doesn't work out good at all. And we're gonna say, and then I'm gonna answer it in the last scene. So think of this as a play with five scenes. Let's get started, first scene. Scene one, Eli and the man of God. Now, this is a sermon where using your pew Bible is gonna come in handy. So, so I want you to follow along with me with your pew Bible. I'm already there at page 382. We're going to look at scripture, short segments of scripture and all of these um, really quickly, but be prepared with, with your text. First Samuel 227, the situation here is that Eli's sons have demonstrated themselves to be unfaithful to God. And then God sends a, uh, a, a um, prophet to tell him what's, what's to happen next, to tell Eli what's to happen next. Now a man of God said to Eli, this is what the Lord says, did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes to be my priest. He's talking about Aaron, Moses' brother, broadly the Levites, in specific the family of Aaron, Aaron was the first chief priest, and his sons be became priests after him, chief priests after him, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear a robe in my presence. He had given them an exalted position. He said, I gave your family an exalted position, he says. And then I also gave you food. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented to the Israelites. And so the Israel would give, all the 11 tribes would give 10% of every, everything they had. And that was the provision for the Levites. He said, I was generous. I gave you an exalted position as the leader, spiritually, of the whole congregation. And then I provided financially for you, he says. So why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every uh, offering made by my people? And so what would happen, what was to happen is when an animal sacrifice was given, the fat part was the, was the best part. It was to be burned. And then after that, the priests could have a share. But what these guys were doing is they were taking the best part for themselves. So the, the, the person would come to the tent of meeting to make their fellowship offering, and they would take the best part. They'd say, won't you, would you just wait until I gave God the best part? And it was like, no, we're taking it now. And in addition to that, they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the temple, or excuse me, at the, at the tabernacle, at the tent. They were sleeping. So these guys were, were scoundrels. But the main sin, sin is this. They were taking God's glory. What was intended for God, they were taking it for themselves. And, and, and Eli knew about it. He, he warned his sons, but he didn't stop his sons from doing it. Therefore, 
verse 30. The Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise to the members of your family who would minister before me forever, forever, him being the line of Aaron. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me I will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut your, short, your strength short and the strength of your priestly house so that no one will reach old age. And essentially he goes on to say that Hophni and Phinehas, the sign is that they're going to die on the same day. And I am going to take another Levite from a different line, Samuel, and he's going to become my faithful priest. And here's the point I want you to get out of this. Our calling alone is not sufficient for us to stand before a holy God. So Lloyd, Lloyd, you know, you're at high point and you've been called to be the pastor of the church. So what? I know for sure God called me to be in this ministry, for sure. But that doesn't give me the right to pastor according to any way I would want. And you, if you are a Christian, if you are, have repented from your sins, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then you, you are not to then continue in godlessness, continue living the way that you lived before. Because you were called out of the world into Christ-likeness, called out of the world into Christ-likeness. You were called for a purpose. And the scripture goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that you, every Christian, everyone in whom the Holy Spirit of God resides is a member of a holy priesthood. So he's not just talking to Eli and his sons and Samuel and his sons. And he's not just talking to me and Nick. He's talking to every Christian. And he says, you're, you're a part of a royal priesthood. You are the spiritual children of Jesus Christ. Come on, talk back with me. You are in a, and you have the power to overcome sin and to live in righteousness. And I like 1 Peter 2 because it says, why were you called? It's, you were called to declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I, you have a purpose, and your purpose is to rejoice in glorifying God, both in your testimony and in your life. Come on, talk with me. Both in your testimony and in your life, that is your purpose. So you have been adopted. And Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world, every Christian was called. It's the greatest mystery. I don't know how that works, but it's true. But you were called to give glory in the way that you live and not to live in your old lifestyle. So that's the first thing. Our calling is alone is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. You got to know your purpose and live out the purpose. That's the first scene. Second scene. Israel, the Philistines, and the ark. This is 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 10. So God has declared this judgment on Eli. He's about to carry it out. In the midst of this, Samuel, he's raising up Samuel. Anytime Samuel makes a prophecy, it comes to pass. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped in Ebenezer, it's an Israelite territory, and the Philistines are ethic. The Philistines exploited their forces to meet Israel, and, and the, as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines. 
who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked an outstanding question. The question was, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They, 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 they knew enough about God to know it wasn't these super powerful Philistines, that, that it was somehow that God had given them into the hands of the Philistines. And what they should have done is prayed. They should have called Samuel and said, Samuel, won't you seek God? Eli's living, but I would have went to Samuel. Come on, talk with me. I would have went to Samuel. And I said, Eli, Samuel, won't you tell us what's going on here? But they didn't. They said, they, they asked the right question. They knew who was behind it. They asked the right question, but then they answered the wrong answer. They said, bring the ark out. What we need to do is Jericho. Remember in Jericho? They should have really remembered Jericho, where God gave Joshua specific instructions, really while he was on his face before, before him. On his face, God gave him specific instructions on, on what to do, which included bringing the ark out. They said, just bring the, he didn't forget, they forgot about the specific instructions and the, and the praying, they forgot all about that, but they, bring the ark out, bring the ark out. The ark will deliver us, that's what they thought. So the people of men, they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, a holy ark, two wicked priests, and we're going to take on the enemy. We're there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all that shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed, which was true. Who will deliver us from the hand of this mighty God? Good question. They are, they, they, they are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. They knew about God and his power and strength and holiness. So what would they do? Maybe we should call the fast. Maybe we should pray. Maybe we should repent. No, no, we're going to fight, they say. And pride, even in the face of truth, they know this is the holy God and his power. They know his legacy and they choose to fight. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or we will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been subject to, to, to us. Be men and fight. They have been overwhelming the Philistines because of the Philistines, excuse me, the, the Israel because of their sin. And they said, we don't wanna be subject to them like we've been ruling over them. We gotta fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What do I want you to learn from this? Our religious icons, our crosses, I go to the health club at Princeton Club West, Fishburg and the main one. Bible, if you see me there, I'm almost always reading my Bible. My Bible, our, 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 our symbols of real faith are not enough for us to stand against the Holy God. And, um, behind our Bible quoting and our Bible t- 
coating, there's got to be substance. There's got to be real faith. In the, in the midst of a materialistic world and a humanistic philosophy of life, we are to, supposed to live devoted lives to God. There's got to be substance in our lives. And there are some signs that are in our society that suggest that there is less substance amongst us generally, Christians as generally, in the West than there used to be. Uh, for the last decade or so, about every year, about 4,000 evangelical churches, Protestant churches close, and about 1,000 start. And in the 10-year decade between 1990 and 2000, there were about 24 million more Americans and 5 million less Christians. And, 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 and there's a thought that the reason is that there isn't any substance, that, that in, in many communities we, we own some of the best real estate, beautiful real estate, like, like our, our, our building in the community. But behind, and that's nothing wrong with icons. I'm not against icons. But behind our icons, there has to be real substance. So Pastor Nick has been thinking a lot about this. And he's written a book called Substance. And we're gonna, he's going to preach a seven-week series when he comes back off sabbatical, starting September the 10th. And there's one uh, thing, there's many things. There's one thing I want to give you an early uh, advance on. He talks about self-sacrificial love. Now, I define self-sacrificial love to be um, endearing and enduring affection, according, demonstrated by the character of God. Endearing and enduring affection, demonstrated by the character of God. Nick says this about it. He says, one of the strangest things about love is that we can't unleash its spiritual greatness without our bodies. Love has to come out of us through what we say, speech, our embrace, our work, our listening, our waiting, our suffering, our cleaning, and our cooking. That is to say, love has got to come, bring it into the church, love and serve each other, and then when we go out to the more unlovable, with our words, with our embrace, with our sacrificing, the difficult boss, uh, the, 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 the child who's rejecting you, uh, the, the neighbor who you know needs help but is a little hard to get to know. In those places is where we live the substance of our faith. Amen. And so are you committed to that kind of, of lifestyle? Are you growing in, in that kind of lifestyle? That's the question. That there's got to be substance behind our icons. If God is to be glorified, if the lost is to be saved. So the first two scenes, our calling alone is not sufficient for us to stand before a holy God. Our religious icons are not sufficient for us to stand. And thirdly, third scene, the Philistines and the ark. This is the funniest scene in the whole Bible, I think. Man, this is a funny scene. The Philistines and the ark, 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 8. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer and Israel to Ashdod in their territory. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple. Dagon was a god of grain. Into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was, there was Dagon 
falling on his face on the ground before the ark in a worship posture. So their God is on the ground. (laughs) Here's the ark of God, a piece of furniture, a little bigger than this one. And (laughs) Dagon is on his face before the ark. They thought it was a mistake of wind, wind. Fell on his face before the ground. Um, So they put it back in its place, but the following morning, verse four, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark, and this time his heads and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold only as his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon, (laughs) to this day now they decide to worship the living God. No. That's not, still not enough demonstration that God has got. No, it, it changed the way they executed their religious festivals. They, they did certain different things when they went into worship day God, but nothing practically changes. But the Lord's hand was very heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and inflicted them with tumors. When the people of Asdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon their God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of God? And so then they move it to Gath. And the same thing happens at Gath. The people are infected by these tumors. There's a plague and there's rats carrying infection and there's thousands of people dying. And, and what kills me is when, by the, the time it gets to the third city, the people say, oh no, they're bringing those God, that God into to destroy us. Oh my God, if that God comes in here, we are doomed. But for seven months, they watch how the holiness of God is wreaking havoc on the city, and there's no yet repentance. Can you imagine? Knowing that this God is causing it, knowing that wherever they send it, he's destroying, they, they still can't figure out. They still don't repent. False gods and their worshipers cannot stand against the holy God. God is not at all concerned about the religions and their territories or the gods that we create for ourselves. This, this scene is given to us to show that he has dominion over all peoples, all nations, and all gods. And God did not fall into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines fell into the hand of God. They repeat this phrase, his hand is heavy on us in every given city that he comes. And so what I want to say to you is that what that means for the church is that we can be offensively minded because our gospel and our our word and our mission will succeed. God will make it stand. Jesus says heaven and earth, all right, uh, may pass away. His word will stand. And he says there's, there's nothing can come against the gates of the church. Nothing can stop. We have an unstoppable mission. The church is unstoppable. So what we need to do is we need to be more offensive-minded. We need to grow in substance, recognizing that the the world can't stand against us. And there's an example of some things that we're doing in our church that are proving this out. And so High Point has a very long vacation Bible school history. 
in a very good vacation Bible school history. The challenge of it is that about 98% of the people who come are churched Christians. And so we haven't been so, so effective with reaching new families and leading people to Christ. And so Vince and, and this new leadership role that he's taken has said, we need to take VBS out into the community. So there are 22 High Point families that are running one week clubs where the message is preached by, preached by teens and taught by teens and, and middle schoolers. So, so kids get a message, but it's from a more like their peers. The target is people, kids, five to 12. Five-day clubs uh, track record is that 40% of the people that attend are non-Christian. And it's because, of course, we're in the neighborhoods where the non-Christians are. It's amazing what happens. We need to go out to the non-Christians and non-Christians. So here's the deal. 22 clubs. First week. Here's a testimony. Uh, Vince sends me a text from, from the, 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 the woman, and, and, and it's, a, it's a High Point family and a Blackhawk family, are running a club at Ally Drive. Three kids have come to Christ. One family asked for Bibles, and they said, and they're, they're, they were able to provide them with some Spanish language Bibles. One family said, We've never, we, we don't go to church. We don't, we love the fact that you have this Bible. In the first week, in the first club, three children have come to Christ. That's because despite any opposition that there's out there, the word of God is powerful, the ministry, the mission of Jesus Christ is powerful, it will produce results. So false gods and their worshipers cannot stand against the holy God and the gospel. So our calling alone is not sufficient for us to stand. Our icons won't allow us to stand before holy God, but false gods and the worshipers can't stand against the whole, a holy God. They can't stand against the holy God, forcing the ark and the citizens of Beth Shemesh. This is um, maybe the toughest scene for me. And so the people in, in Philistine territory are in an uproar and a panic. They're being killed. Even their kings and their families are being affected by this plague. And they come up with a good idea, send it back. They hook the ark up to a cart, uh, two cows, and they say, if it goes without any leader right into Israelite territory, then God's hand has been doing this. But if it just drifts off, then it was, it was chance. And don't you know that baby goes straight up to Israelite territory and they know for sure that it's God's hand that's been on them. I wanna pick up on verse 13 here. Now, the people of Beth Shemeth, now we're in Israel, were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up, they saw the ark and they rejoiced at his sight. They were defeated and depressed. They knew the significance of the ark and its place in the Holy of Holies. This was symbolized the presence of God with his people. And when they saw God returning himself, because the... That's really what happens here. God returns himself to Israel. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the burnt cows of the offering. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord. Good thing, Levites, right people. Together with the chest containing their gold objects and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh, check this out, offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. 
not just the cows that came back that they offer, but they were so delighted that they even offered their own sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw this and then they returned uh, the same day. They recognized that God's hand was heavy on them. They went back to their towns. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for each of the cities. And the number of the golden rats was according to the number of the Philistine cities. Verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 in some, most of the Hebrew manuscripts say 50,070. But because Beth Shemesh was a small town, uh, people feel like, hey, there, were, there must have been an error. In some translations, they have 70. Here's what I want you to know. The people that looked on the ark inappropriately were, were put to death. That's what, that's what happened here. 70, 50,000 and 70. Whoever violated the Lord's holiness was put to death. And here's the point that I want you to get from here. And this is a tough point for uh, people like me that um, are emotional uh, worshipers that love to worship God. And there's nothing wrong with being an emotional worship, worshiper. Our rejoicing and our sacrifices al alone by themselves are not sufficient for us to stand before a holy God. Uh, what I want to say to you is this. The ark. Moses and Aaron were given very specific, careful instructions on how the ark was to be handled. I'll boil it down to you. It was supposed to be carried by uh, uh, th these poles that were already attached. It was supposed to be covered and so that uh, only Moses and his sons would actually see it uncovered. And then when it was to be moved, and it was God who gave the direction to move, so they would come in, they would properly cover it, and then another family of the Levites could come. And then they could carry it, but they weren't even to touch it. And the instruction was, if they touch it or if they uncover it and look at it, they will surely die. And so we don't know if what they did was pulled the covering off and looked at it, they would die. Or if they took the lid off it, where the two cherubim were facing each other, if they took the lid off and looked in to see the two cherubim, we don't know. Either one of them was a grave violation of the holiness of God. We must remember that God is transcendent. He lives above all of his creation, that he is perfect in moral holiness, pure as can be, and he is totally separate from sins. And we must remember about ourselves that we are created, that we are dependent, and that we are because we are human beings, we are subject to sin. We must remember and that God has made a way to close the distance, but we have to remember that God is God and we're not. And we've got to remember that we can't just worship God with our emotions and our affections, though we should always worship him that way. We've also got to worship him with a head that knows the word and with feet that obey the word. And so because our God is full of grace and truth, that our God is a God of love and mercy 
and forgiveness, but he's also a God of righteousness and truth and justice. That our God, in his holiness, I like the way Nick has been talking about it. He says the character of God is known by his company, that love is known by her sisters. Have you been listening to that? Have you been listening to that? That, that the character of God is known, that love is known in concert with perseverance and truth and goodness. That's how, what, that's how love really works within the Christian family. That there's no, that, that righteousness and love are perfectly brought together in our God. And in Christ, we ought to behave in the same way. That's the lesson here. So we have to worship God with our, with our affection. Let's keep doing that. And let's worship him with our knowledge and obedience too. So we see in these first four scenes, problematic ways. One nation and its gods try to stand against. Three separate ways, examples and scenes as God is revealing to his people what his character is like. That's what's happening. That's why I'm looking at, he's revealing who he is. Last, the fourth one, our rejoicing and our sacrifices alone are not sufficient for us to stand before a holy God. But what's the answer? Who can stand before a holy God? And the answer to that is anyone. Rich or poor? Republican or Democrat? I'm not sure about libertarians, but Republicans and Democrats. (laughs) Whatever your, you know, whatever your cultural background, Black, white, Asian, European, African. It's, it's no matter to God. Any, anyone can stand before the, God, before the Lord if they have been cleansed of their sins and if they have committed themselves to him. Anyone can stand. 1 Samuel 6, 27 through 9. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked the question that we're answering today, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And to whom will this ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath Dream, another city in Israelite territory, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. The Philistines didn't return nothing. God returned himself. Come down and take it up to your town. And so they consecrate a priest, no doubt a Levite, and under this faithful priest's leadership, They brought it into Abinadad's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard guard the ark of the Lord, really to keep people from killing themselves. The ark remained at Kiriathrim a long time, 20 years in all. And then we get to our memory verse. I'm going to try to remember. Then all the people of Israel returned to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are now returning to the Lord, with all your heart, that's a key word, all. If you are now returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the asterisk. This is the female fertility God. Rid yourselves of these Canaanite worthless asterisks. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and asterisks and, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. These extremes are here for a reason. There was syncretism. They were trying to worship God and trying to worship these Canaanite gods. This was a recurring problem in Israel. And he said, rid yourselves of that and God will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. I.e., you don't have to live in fear of the enemy. 
If you will cling to your God, he will give you victory. And that's what he says next. He will, God will give you victory. So the people responded. They put away their Baals, the male fertility God, and storm God. They put away their Baals and their asterisks, and they served the Lord. God has made a way for us to stand before him. It's what's interesting about this text is that it took a mediator to come in and explain to the people what was wrong. God had made a way in Israel in the Old Testament so that the sins of the people and the priests could be forgiven. On the day of atonement, a bull and a goat were, were brought, the blood, they were killed, the blood was put, was sprinkled on the ark. There were two goats that were brought, one to make atonement at the, at the ark, the other was a scapegoat. And the chief priest and the chief priest only would put his head on the scapegoat and would confess all of the sins of himself and all of the sins of the people, those that he knew. He would confess, he put it on the scapegoat and then somebody would take the scapegoat and they would carry it out of the camp. And this, this, this goat, this, that, the, the chief priest and all that pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would come and would take away the sins of the world. Everybody knows that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats cannot take away sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator, so God had made a way, has made a way for all people to stand before him. I want to close with this. The, the stain of sin separates us from our God. But God has made a way. He can, he can take out the stains of sin. Uh, my wife and I went to lacrosse to a track meet, state track meet. And, and when, when you purchase your ticket, they, to make sure that you paid, they put an ink spot on your hand. Take a pat, put it on you. She has a beautiful orange skirt. Everybody loves the skirt. I love the skirt. It's a beautiful skirt. So, but it, while it's fresh, while the ink is fresh on her hands, she makes a mistake and hits it on her thigh and ruins it. Right? Come on. Ruins the skirt. So she's like, ah. She gets home. She sends it to Clinky Cleaners. Clinky can't get it out. She gets it back. She's frustrated. She's like, I love the skirt. I don't want to throw it away. So she takes out some stain remover. She takes some special stain remover, probably not that special, and she starts scrubbing. And she scrubs. And, and the stains come out. And God has given us a spiritual stain remover in repentance and faith that can get out all the stains of sin. Verse five of Samuel. Then Samuel said to the assembly, to all Israel at Mizpah, I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, pouring out as a confession of cleanness, pouring out symbolic of cleanness. They poured it out before the Lord. On that day, they fasted. On that day, they confessed. They're scrubbing in. Repentance and faith. On that day, they confessed. On that, on that day, they fasted. August 1st, we'll be fasting. It's a good time to deal with all kinds of things, but also a good time to deal with sin if, they, if they're there in your life. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. 
Now Samuel was serving as the leader, and while they are fasting, while they are praying, while they are confessing, the, 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 the enemy thinks that this is the perfect time. There they are assembled. I don't know, they're doing some phony religious thing. We can waylay them. We're going to wipe them out, they say. But God had made a way through repentance and faith, and they were now received back into fellowship. And Samuel prays. He makes, he's the intercessor. He makes a burnt offering. And don't you know the Philistines were waylaid in all of Samuel's time as priest. They lived in peace with the Philistines. The Philistines backed themselves up. If they fought against Israel, they were losing. God has made a perfect method in himself, in Christ, to remove our sins. All we need to do is trust him. The problem here is pride. The problem with Israel, the problem with the Philistines is pride. But once they recognize that they are created beings and which they see God for who he is and they repent and serve him only, everyone can stand. Worship team, won't you come on up? So I do have a word for Christians, and then I have a word for non-Christians. Here's my word for Christians. We are constantly repenters. Um, remember, this story is about the people of God. They already were God's people, and they needed to repent. Through humbling themselves and pledging themselves anew to their God is how they were able to stand. And for us, God's disciplining hand can be upon us when there's sin in our lives that we are aware of that we have not repented of. We need to be constantly, daily walking in, in Christ. That's the lesson for us. You are a repenter. That's your identity. And for, for those who don't know Jesus, man, he loves you in Anyone can have a relationship with God. I serve God because it's the best way to live. That his word brings me peace. It brings me the material things. Being in Christ brings me the material things that I need. I serve God out of knowing, having not been a Christian, and now being a Christian, I serve God because I've experienced the blessedness of the Christian life. And to the non-Christians, I'm, I'm asking, I'm inviting you in, into the party. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we have a better mediator. And we're thankful that as Christians, we have a heritage of great intermediaries like Samuel and great intermediaries like David and other and other great prophets and kings who sought you with their whole heart but we have a better mediator than that we have you who died on the cross who rose from the grave who has placed your spirit with us and who today is our intermediary that you are there interceding on our behalf 
every day. Whatever our situation, whatever our problem, we know that you are for the best in us, the best of our souls and our minds and the best for our families. And, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will usher your children into eternal life today. We thank you before, because you're the perfect intercessor. And we pray that the whole world get in on this, on salvation and life in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. In Christ's name we pray, amen.